right. Uh, our guest tonight has no idea that she just experienced a flawless introduction. For those of you who have been listening, you know, last week and the week prior, and I think the week prior to that, um, my transitions of intro and the timing was just off. But hey, you know what? It worked this week. So I'm so super excited. Um, because this is episode 77. You would think by 77, I would have it all figured out. But uh, for those of you who know me, I love change. So I change things up because it gives me that those healthy butterflies to um, figure it out. But nonetheless, um, I'm really excited about this episode. And before we get to um, the guest tonight, I just have to make a couple reminders uh, for you all because there's some really awesome big things coming up. Um, over the next, over the next couple months, but, uh, definitely up into June, um, that I want to make sure that you are aware about. So don't forget that the sixth annual creating trauma sensitive schools conference is coming, uh, February 19th to the 25th in Houston, um, Texas, as well as online. And I'm going to tell you all, I went last year. I actually was very honored to be a keynote speaker there. I was actually the backup keynote. So I was like the reserve and I got called up to the big leagues. It was really awesome, um, but got to meet so many amazing people. Uh, there's going to be hundreds. I mean, it's like seven or 800 people that go to this conference, like-minded, gathered and talking. A lot of my friends from here on the podcast are going to be there, including Dr. Lori Desitels, um, who will be on here uh, in two weeks. She was going to be on the podcast. But she's going to be keynoting uh, the conference as well. Um, as some other friends who are going to be there. So Jim Sporleader is going to be there, Joe Brummer, Melissa Saden, James Moffitt. Um, I'm going to be there talking about um, community and schools and how to build that, that, um, that, that culture of community with my colleague, Laura Kane. She's going to be with me, but registration is open. Purchase orders are also welcome. Um, and there's actually a discount if you have 10 or more people. So if you want to attend, um, I will be putting the link if you are live into the uh into the comments um and if you are listening on the podcast it's www.attachmenttraumanetwork.org backslash conference so there's that first announcement um the second one is as you can see if you're listening live at the bottom of the screen you see that there is a little banner you all, I'm, I'm very excited to say that we are back for the fourth annual Trauma-Informed Educators Network Conference, and this year it's virtually. Um, if you if you followed the network or you're part of the network, um, you know that we had to make the decision whether to do it virtual or in person. We decided virtual for a couple reasons. One, our international um, membership has, gro has grown substantially in the last year and a half, and so we want to make it accessible for everyone. Two, um, venues in Nashville, where we've held it last, have exploded. Um, and three, uh, we want to rotate every other year, one year virtual, one year in person. So next year, it's our goal, 2024, to have it in person. But RFP is open right now. Our request for proposal is open until February 10th. If you're like, hey, I want to come present or I want to come talk, we love to have you. I call this the Scrappy Little Trauma-Informed Conference. It's not fancy. It's scrappy, and it's just people who are doing the work across the country and the world who are coming to connect. We have one unique uh, part of our conference, which is called our home groups, 
So every day after um, at the start of the day and even at the end of the day, you actually gather with the same group of people both days of the conference. So you'll meet with them four times. So you leave with a network of people, a connection, a community of people that when you leave the conference, you can stay tied to and, and, uh, and fired up over it. Uh, we believe at the conference that we use the practices we want to see. And building community is imperative. So, if you have a uh, if you have a proposal, get that in before February 10th, and we will be uh, letting all of those uh, know that we have accepted the proposals by the 17th. Um, so, please get those in. Well, that was a lot of information, and I am going to get to why we are actually here, and that is for this week's episode, episode number 77, with Peyton. Bar is it Barcel? I didn't it's ask. It's Barcel, yes. That's it what is. I thought. Okay, okay. We met before. Uh, Peyton Barcel, she actually founded a nonprofit, ACEWARE, after writing and presenting a bill in 2019 to the Nevada legislator requiring teachers to be trained and to identify and support students who have experienced trauma. Mm -hmm. Peyton shouts and snaps to you. Peyton subsequently researched and co wrote a 30 minute trauma informed training video with the Department of Education, which all Nevada public school employees much, must watch annually. Ace Aware distributes the video nationally and raises awareness about the prevalence of childhood trauma. She also volunteers over five years as a counselor for children who've lost a parent or sibling as the lead facilitator of children eight to 12. She's studying history and public health at Columbia University to one day enter the field of education policy and ensure that every child has an equal opportunity at education they deserve. So Peyton, welcome to the Trauma-Informed Educators Network podcast. That was a little bit about you, but tell us the Peyton story. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad to be here today. Um, yeah, my, my name is Peyton and I am a college student and I got involved in trauma-informed education as grassroots, as grassroots come. Um, I lost my dad when I was nine and felt really deeply unsupported in my classrooms. Um, and so I had an amazing support system at home and my mom was um, found, found a resource for me to be able to take part in peer support groups. Um, for, for children who had lost a parent or sibling, which is the same organization that I was involved with later on volunteering at. And I just realized that this was way, way bigger than I was. Um, and it was, those were the first spaces where I'd ever felt really understood in what I was going through, which reminder for all that one in 20 students will lose a parent or a sibling before they turn, I think this, I think it's 16 years old at this point. And these are pre-COVID numbers. So the numbers are unfortunately far higher now. So this is really not a unique experience, but I'm telling you as somebody who went through it, it felt really, like I felt really isolated. Um, and just over doing lots of research and becoming involved in community efforts, um, I realized that there is a really large need for young people to be involved in this. And I'm a really big believer in not forcing that upon young people to take on the burden of being a traumatized student and then having to speak on that. But I felt like that was something that I really wanted to take on. Um, and so it's really important to me to get it so that all teachers eventually are trained in how to support students of trauma. Um, and so I've really broadened my network from just bereavement circles to every like, to all sorts of different ACEs. Um, and yeah, that's a little bit about who I am and what 
matters the most to me. And I'm really excited to talk to you more. Well, thank you for that introduction. And um, we, we actually have somebody that said they would love to watch your training video. So we'll make sure we get that out um, for sure. But we've, we've had some prior discussions. And if you all were listening last week, you heard Jen Kurt um, from CTIP talking about the initial meeting we had with the Department of Education. And she mentioned Peyton. Peyton was there. And so um, I've been able to chat a bit with Peyton. And I know her passion is very deep. Um, and unfortunately, it's because of her lived experience, right? Um, but what role do you see student advocacy playing within the trauma-informed network? And when I say advocacy, I mean students advocating for themselves. How do you see this playing a role? Um, I had a great discussion this week with someone um, who was, we, we were talking, he, and he was describing that if students just had the vocabulary to express how they felt, then it would change the game. And I pushed back a lot and said, but if they're expressing themselves in a place that isn't safe in a classroom, then, and if an adult feels if that they're, um, they're, they're making some sort of disrespectful um, uh, um, uh, comment, it can actually backfire. But what do you see this role of advocacy and students playing uh, within the Trauma-Informed Educators Network? Or trauma in, trauma <laughs> you know what I'm saying, the trauma-informed yes. movement. Well, as silly as this sounds, it's really important to me that I ground people in the fact that children are people too, um, and that students are people too, and that the words that they use may not sound quite as sophisticated as the words that adults are using to describe feelings and emotions, but all students have the tools to be able to describe emotions when given the correct environment and a safe environment and a safe place to be able to express themselves. And so student advocacy to me means um, putting students in environments where they feel safe enough to be able to express to the adults in their lives how they're feeling and how they are affected. And I have seen kids who have been nonverbal for months on end by the end of being, being in these environments be able to say, hi, I'm feeling sad today and this is why. And like that's what's most important to me is just having a space where students are able to safely identify and be able to have an open dialogue with the trusted adults in their life about what they're going through without judgment and without pushback of well you're just a kid it's really not that big of a deal because what might not be a big deal to an adult could be a really big deal to a student and then conversely things that are really big deals to adults are really bigger deals to to kids who who don't have enough life years to be like grounded in the fact that life gets better because that that is just the life that they've had that's the life that they've experienced right um i would say like if you if you're born in a burning house you don't know that the house is on fire like that's um i know that's used a lot but i think it's really true um and so student advocacy this is a very long answer but student advocacy just means to me recognizing that students can identify for themselves what they need um from from their safe trusted adults you know and and a lot what you said resonates with me for sure and i as an elementary school teacher and principal and instructional coach i learned that a lot of students came in um really not able to um, have the words to express how they feel right it, and i talk about this all the time a lot of kids um their four big emotions are happy sad mad and hungry and so 
I may be frustrated, but the only word I have is mad. And so I do see a role of, of that identification of those um, feelings with the words that go with it, because um, advocacy could look like, right, Peyton? If a child is upset saying to an adult, I'm really upset right now. When a kid would do that to me at school, I respected that. Like, or you're making me really frustrated. I would say, hey, I tell you what, I hear you're frustrated. I'm going to go sit over here for a minute and you let me know if I can come back over here, right? But, but, and for some reason, um, in our culture, that is perceived in a lot of spaces and places as being disrespectful. Right. And I think that's part of this work, right? Changing the paradigm that self-advocacy is one human who might be younger and, a, and, and small using words to tell adults that I need space. It may not be I need space, but by saying I'm really angry or I've had kids say, get up out my face. And that tells me I need to get out of their face, right? Or I'm too close. I need space. How do you see that paradigm shifting? Because it's a long-rooted one where there's a there there's been a saying for 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 centuries: children are to be seen and not heard. You and I are both saying no. Children actually need to be heard, right? I really do very strongly believe that children need to be heard, and not only that, I think that the first step to solving this 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 problem and shifting that paradigm is recognizing that no child is like a bad kid and that some sometimes kids act out and but there, there's always a reason why and that that reason why is not like to ruin the classroom dynamic the reason is like they're hungry and they weren't they didn't get breakfast that morning or they're dealing with a lot at home or they're dealing with a lot at school um like there's just a lot of different things in my training video what was really important to me was to include scenarios that teachers like could see in real life as to how they can maybe use some best practices to better handle um, situations in which a child is being re-traumatized in the classroom. The one that comes to mind in this conversation is um, we, we say a fire alarm goes off and a, and a kid starts, um, starts crying and runs under the table. And instead of like, instead of reprimanding that child during that fire drill and being like, Hey, you've got to get outside me. Instead we can, you can take some deep breaths and, and get you get on that child's level and you, you try to ask them, like, what's going on, buddy? How are we feeling today? Why? Like, because so often that loud noise can be re-traumatizing from a past experience. And so, like, no kid wants to be crying under a table is what is kind of what I always try to remind people. Um, and that kids are having really overwhelming responses to their environment that maybe you wouldn't be having, but it is you can get to the root cause of why it's going on it's a lot easier to respond to than stop making such a big deal out of this it's like nothing's wrong you know i, I saw a post on a it's a large social media group uh, for principals and it was um a picture of a destroyed classroom and the principal was saying like this is my reality and a bunch of people were saying oh you know i'm experiencing it too and my brain automatically went, can, I, can you imagine being the student in that space that that was, that is how you felt to the point. And to me, a lot of people saw destruction and I saw, I saw pain. 
I saw anger and frustration, but not of a way of that was the only response that that child had at that time to be able to cope with whatever right. they were coping about. And as a principal, I had to keep in that space. And Peyton, I'm going to be honest, there were days it was hard because I wasn't regulated, right? I wasn't a grounded adult. And so the escalation of students brought my escalation up instead of me keeping the calm. And it contributed to this cycle of, of yes. a dysregulation, right? And I think... yes. I think that that's something that that's really important is how do you see this bridge between teacher and student needs? Because, man, there is this conundrum happening right now where I've seen it and it's happened and I've had comments on things that I post of, yeah, but the teachers are stressed too. I'll be like, kids are experiencing, but the teachers are experiencing this too. And what about this? But the teachers are, and it's true. Teachers are extremely in high pressure, stressful situations. They have things going on in their life. But how do you see this bridge between a teacher's needs and a student's needs? And how can we bridge both of those? Yeah, that's a really great question. And one that I think you have to toe the line of sometimes to really get everybody in a position that they feel most comfortable in. But trauma-informed schools don't happen overnight. And they also start from the top down with educators understanding that they need to take care of themselves before they are able to take care of others. Um, and I think to best answer that question, I'll actually flip scenarios to kind of more what I was experiencing, which was I was a really shy kid and I was sitting in my classroom doing my work and after my loss, like didn't seem like much had changed. And so my teachers were like, oh, she's good. She's great. She's totally fine. Um, and I wasn't talking to anybody on the playground and I was completely self-isolating and like, no, nobody wanted to talk to me because what nine-year-old knows how to deal with another kid whose dad just died. Like, there's no way to, nobody teaches you to how to, how to handle that in adulthood, let alone in childhood. And so, um, I think best to best bridge those needs it's to look at every single student individually rather than how your classroom is being affected is I think what I, what I would say is the most important because when you look at your destroyed classroom, that's really overwhelming. When you look at that kid, that's hopefully less overwhelming and hopefully you see the sadness and you see the pain, but then you also look at his classmate next to him and you see the shy little boy in the corner who's clearly scared about that. What's gone on and you have to be able to address both of those scenarios um yeah yeah and i mean i think that's key and peyton i've spoken all over the country and i've spoken internationally and i commonly ask the question of how do you what characteristics do you see of children who have experienced trauma now, i'm gonna be honest it's a baited question um because i always see aggressive defiant like all these things come out, but rarely do I ever see perfectionist, quiet, um, class clown. I don't, I don't hear these other ones that we know exist, right? Mm -hmm. And I think because we are still trying to shift the paradigm of compliance, right? When we have students who are compliant, we perceive that as okay. 
Right. But compliance certainly doesn't mean okay in a lot of students. And I heard that with you. You would come to class, be quiet, do what you were supposed to do. But internally, you were grappling with this grief that nobody had really even stopped to say, what are we going to do to support Peyton? Not to Peyton, but with, right? How can we travel through this with Peyton? And is that, is that, was that your experience? That was absolutely my experience. And I, I came back to school the day after my dad died and that really threw teachers off guard and like, understandably so that's a really tough situation to be put in. Um, I say now after a lot of years have gone by, that I absolutely do not fault any of my teachers for the experiences that I had because I was really angry for a long time at what I had to experience. But looking back, they were absolutely doing the absolute best that they could. Um, unfortunately, though, their best was was that they were unequipped and how to support me. Um, and I was already a pretty shy kid. And so people didn't really ask questions. And then years went by and I just became more and more engrossed in my studies. And that was what they wanted out of kids anyway, was they were like, great, she's she's got straight A's. She's, she's an athlete on the side. She's doing all sorts of extracurriculars. Like this is clearly, like clearly she's doing great. I was severely anxious. Um, I would go home and have panic attacks and like could barely sleep without my mom being next to me. Um, but you would have never known at school, except for people should have known because no student is just magically okay after their parent unexpectedly dies. Um, and that's what I have to keep telling people is like, no matter how much you think this person is okay, they are certainly not. Because I, 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 I'm like, what would you do in that scenario? If, if you wouldn't be okay in that scenario, there's no way that a young person is. And that is, I mean, again, going back to what you said at the very beginning, kids are human. I, I lost my mom in April of 2021. And as an adult who has stood by people who have lost parents, Peyton, I didn't understand. And I didn't even, there were times I didn't even know how to grapple with the grief I was feeling and still feel. I mean, there's things that happen that 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 in, that just invoke that grief again, right? And yet you're right. We for some reason a lot of times believe that kids just they they don't even know like they don't even know enough to even well, know. Right. There's always the comment that kids are so resilient, and that's I do believe that. Like I believe that there is resilience in all of us, but kids shoving down their emotions is not resilience. It's survival, and it's like, I always, I, I really don't like the adage like, oh, your trauma makes you stronger. Um, I'm like, th this hope, hopefully the support that you get afterwards make, makes you stronger, but that, that initial trauma is not making you stronger. And if you are continuously being re-traumatized in your classrooms, that is certainly not making you stronger. Yeah, the the whole the whole trauma makes you stronger thing. It does make me a little, it, 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 it makes me a little frustrated and, and sometimes a little angry. Um, because our ideal is that kids don't have to deal with trauma, right? Now, of course, there are those uh, unexpected life experiences that we can't prevent, right? We just can't. So that is going to exist. But what you said is so spot on. 
It's not about the event. It's how the support systems step into place for that individual to help them journey through whatever it was that occurred. And it made me think, Peyton, I had an experience as a principal where we had a family uh, lose their father. Um, and at the time, we had two boys in our school, and we there were three or five siblings all together. Two were in our school, and three had been at our school. And they came to school the next day. And um, I've talked about it here. Uh, and again, I don't talk about children's trauma stories. I simply talk about my experience in that. Um, and the youngest was only in first grade. And it was a tragedy what happened. And all I could do was just hold them. I didn't, that's all I could do. That's what I would do with my own son if my wife passed away, is just hold them. Um, and we cried together. Um, and that changed me as an adult. Um, and I don't know because I never, I'm not going to say how did that, I, no, I just know that there was a true, that was empathy, 100%. I didn't know what else to do, so all I did was hold them. Um, and sometimes that's, you do what instinctively you feel you need to do. Right. I always say, I know that a lot of teachers will feel really uncomfortable with scenarios that they're placed in and then won't say anything at all yes. because they think that that is a better way at supporting their student. I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. Um, even if you sound a little clunky, I promise you saying something is better than saying nothing um, because I had teachers that like didn't even address what had happened and I went to a school with 60, 60 kids in my grade. Everybody knew and I knew everybody knew. Um, and so being in fourth grade and having my brother be in kindergarten and just like having kids staring at us all the time and then having no teacher step up to say anything except for one student, I mean, except for one teacher who she herself had lost her husband. And so her, her child had dealt with this exact scenario. She was the only person who in the whole time I was in that elementary school ever really sat down with me and like offered me any semblance of support and then I stayed at that school for a lot of years afterwards and when parents would die um, my brother and I would get reached out to to talk to other students because teachers still had no idea what to do and they thought that we were more equipped with how to support them than their own staff to give you an idea of the level of trauma-informed education that was previously available at my school. Yeah, and I will tell you, I'm going to share some resources, and I know you've got some resources, too, that you're going to share. Uh, one of them, I actually, if you are listening live, you'll see the link. Um, it is actually the 12th episode of uh, Connections Matter Academy, uh, which is a one of the guests that was on here. Uh, Beth actually helped co-create, um, and it is a video about grief. Um, I would say, and there was actually a, 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 a warning on the video that it could um, that could bring up grief for people. Um, but it also is a tool that adults can use appropriately if applicable in situations when you need to have a conversation. That's one. I'm also going to share before we end, I have to actually go and locate it. Um, she was actually going to be on here. Leora Wolf was going to be on here. Um, and she is, had a baby and I had to cancel. Um, but she, this is the, her organization specializes in exactly what you're talking about, Peyton, is helping schools when they suffer a loss, whether it is a student's parent, whether it is a teacher. And I, I will tell you, um, 
just over the the winter break, there was a, a teacher lost her life at the school that I was a principal for seven years. And thank goodness my district is uh, trauma-informed and did have a response plan and did have, what are we going to do? And the principal was ready and they had a circle with the students and they were able to talk about their what happened and what was going to happen next and build predictability for kids, right? But that isn't everywhere. And I think it's this is something that if you're a school administrator, if you're a teacher, it's something you need to be prepared for. God forbid that you need to use it. But if you do, be prepared to know how to have that conversation to just not even the idea, I'm sorry, that doesn't, I see you. And I'm here if you need to tell me anything. I can't imagine what you're having to experience. That I mean, just having that human connection is key. So let's get back to, the, we could talk about this all day, right? And I, I have, because I have such experience with it, um, it just, uh, it, ju- it just, I'm very passionate about it. Um, but what about hearing student voices in this work? And Peyton, you and I had a conversation before we got onto the podcast. There's just not enough kids, right? There's not enough kids no. talking about this because maybe they don't even know it exists. How do you see student voice being a power of this movement? I think that student voices are going to be the game changer in this conversation because um, I see the way that people light up in the room when I enter a chat versus somebody who's giving me the exact same amount, like the exact same information who's 20 years older than I am. And Um, I'm in a really unique situation right now where I really try to use my age to my advantage to try to get people to listen. Um, And it's unfortunate that we're not listening to adults on the same information, but I, they're right in that I was in a, like, I'm still in a classroom. I'm a sophomore in in college right now. Like I, um, they're right in that I, I do know what it was like to be a student more recently than most, but um, I think we have to be tapping into that and we have to be asking students what they need um to build a to to build a model that will actually support students um because who better knows what they need than the students themselves um and student advocacy doesn't have to look like somebody standing up and saying hi i've been through x y and z thing and this is why it's horrible student advocacy can be like hey i had a rough day at school today and you asking me what was going on made me feel a lot better. We should be doing a lot more of that. Like, so using students in, in spotlight scenarios um, like does not have to be as exploitative as I think people like initially fear it will be. Um, I went through a lot of that when I was presenting legislation and needed testimonials. Like I had a really hard time being like, you don't have to give me your life story if you don't want to. That is not what I'm asking from you. All I'm asking from you is that you say, hey, I would really like it if my teacher were able to have the tools that they need to be able to check in with me and my peers. Um, and so as adults, I ask you to to not cry because I've had a lot of people who are a lot older than I am ask me really, really personal information very publicly. Um, and that's not fair to be putting young kids in that scenario. So if we are really dedicated to not being exploitative in the way that we are claiming to be in trauma-informed spaces, my request from everybody listening today is to not do that. Um, that is maybe what I am most passionate about because I got into this work so young. 
Um, if somebody wants to share their story, that's amazing. If they do not, that is also amazing. You know what I've learned? Adults are nosy. I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. true, Peyton. Adults are nosy. Um, people want to know what happened. People want to know. I mean, I've even I even saw it was a I think it was a, a YouTube reel or whatever Facebook reel of like this girl like hearing somebody's second uncle of their third cousin passed away and here's me trying to figure out what happened that's literally how people handle sometimes kids trauma stories of they just want to know the details here's what i say we don't have to know stories right we should be treating every kid right in this space particularly because we are in a post not we are in a covid world right now i will not even call it a post-covid world Every single student that you're speaking to has been affected by trauma in some way. We're, we may not be calling it that, but that is what was going on. Everybody has been severely impacted in the way that their education has functioned in a way that is traumatic for young young people and old people. Um, and so we don't need to know the gory details to understand that every single student in, in your classroom deserves to feel supported and deserves to like be able to express how they're feeling about any any sort of situation and i think the power of this of of one story there's power in that right um absolutely and we and, and that story the power of that story can't just be given away or pried out of people right how do you i mean because you you have said i've used my age and and my story to like connect and push the agenda but how do you see the power of your story not you particularly, but people's story um, playing out and how they utilize it or don't because um, we certainly don't want uh, kids to feel um, subjectified or um, this. Uh, we talked earlier about this idea of saviorism. I think that happens really um, commonly within this field of trauma-informed work. Um, a lot of people want to save the the kid who was experienced as if there's going to be like a hallmark movie of them or something it we we've got to get past this idea right and just humanize but what do you see the power of one story um and, and not in their life and even in 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 just in general well i think that using people's i think that like storytelling is a really, really effective way in getting people to listen. And especially in this area where trauma-informed education is underfunded and under-listened to, um, I think that the power of somebody's story is an absolute game changer. Um, I, I can see the way that people light up in the room when I talk about what I've experienced. Um, and that's important to me. And so I continue to share. Um, and I think that that's important to a lot of people and so I think the, I think giving space um, to allow as many people as, as would like to come forward is really important um, because I've watched people be, I've watched people be turned away. Like you're, um, you as a child, like sound kind of clunky and we don't want, we don't want you in here because you're going to mess up this meeting. None of that. Get the kid in there. If they want to talk about what they're experiencing, absolutely bring them into that meeting. Um, because as a young person who was the clunky kid who didn't totally know exactly how to tell her story, it was empowering for me to be able to be there and listen and talk about what I had been through. 
and also to see the difference that it was making. And so if you have a kid in your classroom or in your like in your home who wants to talk, absolutely let them because those stories are going to be what makes a difference in the world. Um, they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be well trained and rehearsed. Um, they just have to be real and kids are really good at being real. Um, I promise they'll tell you how it is. And you just, you have to be receptive to that. Um, and it may not be what you're expecting to hear. And also like I've had five-year-olds who sound 50 in my opinion, mm -hmm. where I'm like, wow, I could never have identified how I was feeling in the way that you have. You just have to give them the space. Absolutely. And I've got to get a, a, give a shout out um, to ESDAC in Kansas um, because I attended, uh, I spoke at their conference as a keynote. And before I got up to speak, they um, allowed students to just get up and share their stories. Um, and it wrecked me. Um, and it didn't wreck me in a bad way. It wrecked me in a good way. It had a this... I have a fire in me for this work, but it just threw fuel on it. Um, and there was one student, his name was his his name was Caden. And Caden told his story, and it was very interesting that Caden and I had a similar story. Um, and I don't share my story openly like Caden did. His bravery was remarkable. Um, and it just ignited me. And I actually went completely off the rails on my keynote and just went on a full-on... 40-minute tangent um, about how student voice is so important. But a huge shout-out to them. But this work isn't just you, right? It's become a family affair. So tell us a little bit about this uh, this understudy. Whether he is or not, I'm going to give you the credit of you being like the the mentor. But tell us about what you're, this project that your brother is actually uh, doing. Well, I always introduce my brother as the cooler Barcel. He is... <laughs> three and a half years younger than I am and absolutely going to light the world on fire one day. Um, and that day like might be today. He, <laughs> um, he is in the process of finishing and publishing a workbook on um, mental health, like coping skills and resources for um, I think the target age is middle schoolers. Um, but this workbook is for any student you can possibly think of. And I honestly think that it's great for adults um, and it's just a, it's like talking about sympathy and empathy and talking about like big feelings and healthy coping skills. Um, and he worked really, really hard on this project for the last year and a half. And it went live a few months ago. And, um, he is currently trying to pass legislation in Nevada in this upcoming session that starts in February. Um, that would be bringing mental health curriculum to middle schools across Nevada. Um, and I think he's the coolest ever. And I think that you should absolutely go check out his workbook. <laughs> well, it sounds like I need to have him on here too, but I put the, I put the link, uh, for those of you who are listening live. And for those of you who are on the podcast, the website is www.copingkids.org backslash single, um, dash project. That is his project. And I love that Peyton, um, is on here promoting her own brother's work and that he is jumping in to say, you know what, I'm going to do something too. Um, you all, this is what gives me hope in this work is that I, I'm sorry, Peyton, I'm going to call you a kid. It's just, I'm 45 and I, I'm, I, I'm a kid. Okay, good, okay. good, good, good. I'm, I absolutely <laughs> own that title as long as yeah. I take it. <laughs> 
kids like Peyton and her brother, and I got to give a shout out to an amazing kid that I have been able to mentor and connect to, Olivia Bell, who is a junior in high school here in Nashville, who reached out to me and said, would you be a mentor of a year-long project that I'm doing? I want to look at the impact of adversity on women and girls um, in a long-term way. And I said, absolutely. Um, Just that we see so much courage happening from our youth. And here's what I'm going to say. We need to listen. We just need to listen. Um, A lot of times we feel we have the answer, and yet the answer is right in front of us. And sometimes that's the kids that we get the privilege of interacting with every single day. And I also want to say that when we talk about trauma and we're talking about students, we're not just talking about what happened to them outside of the school. I did a post um, in the last week and a half where I put a graphic up and I said, how are kids, how do kids experience trauma in schools? And I got a lot of hate, to be honest. Um, I had some people saying it was teacher bashing. I had some people saying that it was not okay. I'm going to say, and Peyton, uh, she agreed with me before we got on of her experience was traumatic outside of school, but it also was traumatic inside of school. And there are kids every day that may not even experience trauma outside of school that come to school and only experience it inside of school. And there's kids who experience it in both places, right? We as educators need to create that safe, stable, nurturing environment where we can meet kids where they are, whether it's like Peyton in the day after her dad passed away, she had to come to school. We have to meet them where they are. And at the end of the day, it's their voices that we need to be listening to. And when we say, when we were talking about student voice, I also want to encourage, if you are an educator or a principal and you're listening, survey your students. Survey them. It was the most powerful thing that I did as a principal. Ask them what they think about your school. Here's what I did. I even went out on a limb. I wanted to know what they thought about me. And I got it. And they were right. Sometimes I wasn't nice, right? Ask them what they think about their school environment, what they think about the classroom, what they think about their peers, what they think about the cl- the teacher. Ask them, because if we don't ask, we only at that point make assumptions. And we cannot make assumptions anymore. We actually have to allow our students to use their voice. So that was my tangent. I'm going to be quiet. And so Peyton, if people want to get a hold of you, I'm going to put your um, I'm going to put your email address and your website into the chat. But if you could let people know who are listening on the podcast, if they want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Um, absolutely. So my website is www.aceaware.org and you can absolutely find all of my information there. Um, there's also a YouTube channel under my name that has my training video if you're interested in watching that. Um, and then just my, my email, um, I'm always reachable at PeytonBarcel at gmail.com. Um, there are lots of different avenues to find me. I'm also, I have a public Facebook page with the community service that I've done. Um, there are lots of different ways to find me and I would love to talk to each and every one of you who would like to. So please reach out on any of those platforms. I am around. And she's still a student, so don't wear her out. She's got studies to do and she's got world to change. Um, I can't wait, Peyton, until the day um, that you are uh, in that legislative space and changing policy because I will 
uh, be right behind you, uh, cheering you on and advocating for that that you advocate for. Um, because I know you have some great mentors in that space. Um, and I can't, we need more, right? And shout out to CTIP, the Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice. Jen was on here last week. They're doing that work. I already see Peyton as like stepping right in and being a champion for all of us that have no clue what um, what that policy looks like. Uh, but Peyton, thank you so very much for coming on, uh, sharing what you were willing to share. I know that um, I don't take that for granted that you are uh, willing to share what you share and all that you've done um, because this work is important and it's definitely something that um, we all need to be having conversations around. So for all of, the, all of the you that are listening live, thank you for being here. For all of you that are listening on the podcast, thank you so very much. I will be back, I think, next week. I, I'm going to be honest and tell you I don't remember. But I do remember that on February 16th, Dr. Lori Desitels will be on here again. And we're going to be talking about her new book, Intentional Neuroplasticity. Uh, which I was able to review pre, a pre. This is one of those fancy pre copies. I'm sure it's worth like a million dollars because it's uh, it's the draft. But anyway, we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about her keynote at the Attachment and Trauma Network Conference, um, and she's going to be uh, keynoting the Trauma Informed Educators Network Conference too. So you'll be able to hear her if you come to the conference. So thank you all very much, and as always. Please, please, please. There we go. As always, please, please, please go out into the world and simply do something awesome.